Rabbi Yitz Greenberg, said something to the effect that Judaism is about becoming a 15% better person than you are. It struck me because I thought, 15%? That's, that's not enough. That's <laughs> not enough. Now that I'm older and wiser, I think 15%, that's ridiculous. You know, <laughs> give me two or 3% a year compounded annually, that would be fantastic. Hi, Deborah Waxman, and I'm so happy to welcome you to Hashivenu, Jewish Resources for Resilience. Today, my guest is Rabbi Mark Margolius, my friend and my colleague. Mark is the Senior Program Director at the Institute for Jewish Spirituality, and he is the Director of the Tikkun Yidot Program there. And Mark also served for many years as a congregational rabbi, most recently for seven years as the rabbi of West End Synagogue, a vibrant reconstructionist community on Manhattan's Upper West Side. Mark, thanks so much for being here. It's great to be here. Looking forward to it. I've been thinking about this conversation since the beginning of Hashivenu, and um, some of it came out of a really powerful teaching that you did, wow, almost two years ago on Nidot, and I wanted to ask you to talk a little bit about um, how you come to be a teacher of Nidot. What is, uh, you know, what was your, what's your understanding, and why is this uh, a powerful pathway for you? Um, it's a great question, and for me, actually, the answer goes all the way back to my childhood, growing up in a reform synagogue in suburban New York um, in the late 60s, when for me, I think my Jewish identity really crystallized both around um, Judaism as a, uh, as a force for social change and also for personal change. And from the very beginning, I think for me, the two are very strongly connected that um, personal change and real, you know, I, I didn't have the language for this as a kid, but I definitely felt like Judaism was meant to help me be my best self and that it was meant to help society be the best version of itself and that the two were connected in some way. So I always thought, I always thought about and measured Jewish practice against, is this something that really helps me be a better person? Or in what way would this help me be a better person? What's the meaning of it in some way? Um, and as I've, you know, as I've grown and gotten older and wiser and um, stumbled plenty of times in my, in my life, um, I've thought about, um, how does Judaism help us both uh, forgive or be forgiven, forgive ourselves for those stumbles, and also um, be better prepared for the obstacles and stumbling blocks that are, that are always in the way um, and help us meet them in a way that's much, much wiser than we might normally. Um, so uh, the Midot, um, which, you know, the, the word midot literally means measures and midas. The singular means measure. It basically refers to a, a quantity of a particular quality, a moral or and spiritual, in, in Jewish tradition, a spiritual quality that has a, a moral or ethical component that's embedded in every human being. That also goes all the way back for me from the time I, you know, I learned that Judaism represents the idea that we're all made in the image of God. And what does that mean um, as a reconstructionist? personally, as a reconstructionist, and, you know, if I understand God is imminent and part of me and operative within me, then I can really experience this almost on a visceral level, that this energy that is moving through me that I understand as the divine and through everyone and around us all 
has different facets, different aspects, um, which if I can access them and, and get, you know, move the obstacles out of the way, they can manifest and show up in me and they show up practically every day. And the words I choose to speak and the actions I choose or, and the words I avoid and the actions I avoid. So, you know, this is obviously a longer story that we'll talk about, but it, for me, it's really been about coming to the point of understanding Judaism as a set of practices, whether people want to call them spiritual practices or just practices, which is designed to help me be the person I am meant to be in the world. Um, and that I am hopefully growing towards day by day and moment by moment. I mean, I, I think that people, you know, one of the things about being a rabbi is people say, like, you know, why are we here? What do, you know, they'll ask these big questions. And I'm so grateful. That's one of the reasons I became a rabbi is to be able to engage, have, have the discipline and the opportunity to engage in the big conversations and then translate them into a very practical way. And I think when I look at religions and wisdom traditions writ large, I, I think that my answer to why are we here is that we are here to learn how to grow in wisdom, learn to love each other better, and to improve somehow on this world that we've inherited. And for sure, I am religious rather than just spiritual because it moves me into uh, a conversation uh, both across history and with contemporary people in how to do that. And you just boil it down so succinctly. It's astonishing to me that you have that awareness from such a young age and that you've carried it through in your adult vocation as understanding. For me as a kid, even as I spent a lot of time in synagogue, it was so much just about being with people. And it was, I could, it was not much more than that. Like it was, it was deeply abiding and sustaining, but I couldn't, and there was a lot of menschlichkeit embedded within it, but I couldn't articulate it. Well, it? well, in fairness, neither could I. I mean, I yeah. think um, in, that, in retrospect, I'm, I'm seeing the connections. Yeah. But uh, I certainly, you know, have evolved. This was probably kind of tucked away in the recesses of my awareness. And it definitely has moved completely to the forefront of my awareness where I see, I see all of this as a seamless part of what we're, what we're here to do. Um, it doesn't mean it's easy. It just yeah. means for me, it just means it's clear and it really is applicable. What I, what I appreciate about it is that it's, you, it's applicable across the board from the most you know, adamantly secular slash atheist Jew to the most devout or pious or observant Jew. Um, it has to do with um, how does Jewish civilization provide us with guidance that um, that's not just aspirational because that, that's the other part of it is that I feel like I've lost, you know, I've lost uh, appetite for the expressions of aspirational Judaism, which are great. They sound great. But what I'm interested in is how does it work? You know, does it actually matter? And, you know, I'll just throw in here that, you know, a couple of, th you know, I often use this anecdote. Um, when I was a rabbinical student, I was an intern at Klal. And Rabbi Yitz Greenberg was the director of Cloud then, and he said something, I don't remember exactly the context, but he said something that really hit me where he said, uh, and I've checked this quote with him actually in the last couple of months because I've, I've quoted him so often and realized I have no idea if he actually said this or not. And he, he didn't say this exactly, but he said something to the effect that Judaism is about becoming a 15% better person than you are. Mm. At the time when he said that, it struck me because I thought 15%? That's, that's not enough. That's not enough. I thought it's about becoming 100%, 110%. Um, mm -hmm. So I was kind of taken aback by that. And now, you know, I, whenever, I, whenever I cite that, I then follow it up by saying, 
now that I'm older and wiser, I think 15%, that's ridiculous. You know, <laughs> give me, you know, I would accept two, per, two or 3% a year compounded annually. That would be fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I, just, just to throw this in, I did call him two months ago um, at his home in Riverdale to say, did you say something like this? And he said that the, I, I, he, did, I, he didn't say exactly that, but he said something to the effect as he was speaking to rabbinical students. And he said, um, you should not expect your congregants to be 15% quote unquote better or more involved or more engaged or uh, than they are because you shouldn't set the bar too, the bar too high. Mm-hmm. But he himself comes from a Musar background. And so mm-hmm. the, it all got conflated. And the point, is, the point remains that, um, that Judaism is about raising the bar for our behavior and our inner life. And at the same time, it recognizes that we're flawed, you know, limited, mortal human beings who are not capable of perfection. And, um, and that uh, realistically, a little bit of improvement um, can mean a lot. And for anyone who has gone, to, you know, who has experienced the Jewish high holidays year after year and goes over the same list of, you know, of, shortcomings and says, oh, this year I'm going to be better. And then find yourself the next year saying, well, let's try it again this year. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. that's, which is really my point that we, you know, we, the, the intention and resolutions are great, but they do not account for the hidden obstacles that are waiting for us and laughing as we're making those resolutions and saying, oh yeah, um, well, you know, you better be prepared to deal with the fact that when, just to be practical about it, that you're going to not be able to resist making a snarky or, or nasty comment um, at someone's expense and then immediately regret it, or uh, that you're going to not be as generous as you might have been in your tzedakah um, because for, you, you are either rationally or irrationally worried about having enough for yourself or your family. And, um, uh, or, and you know, I could go on and on about ways in which we, we might do better than we do and there are reasons why we don't. And I think that's my particular interest in that. I'm actually more interested in the obstacles and the aspirations. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're talking about a, a deeply pragmatic approach toward incrementally improving our behavior, right. and maybe our character. Correct. Um, and so let's, uh, for, let's, let's, like, so, so will you, what, what, so give me an example. What, it, what do we, um, I, I, I love the, the overarching framework, and now let's move to the precise. Okay, so I mentioned, first of all, just to get the terminology straight, mm-hmm. I, I, used the word, I was using the word midot, which are mm-hmm. these ethical slash spiritual qualities, which, uh, which are hardwired into every human being, I believe. Mm-hmm. That they're, they're there with, they are there within us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we all have the capacity to be, um, to be loving and uncondi- to be unconditionally loving. We all have the capacity to set boundaries, to set wise boundaries. We all have the capacity to regulate our ego and not veer towards egotism um, or self-centeredness or complete self-negation. We all have the capacity uh, to be uh, for um, the midah that's known as zirizut, which means like energetic response, you know, to kind of step on the accelerator, press, you know, get on the gas and to move. We all have the capacity for gratitude. We all have the capacity to, uh, to um, foster a sense of connection. 
and we all have the capacity for speaking wisely and also knowing when not to speak. Um, do we do all those things sometimes? The yes. <laughs> do, we, do we do them? Sometimes we do. And sometimes um, we have, you know, that's on the, on this, on the simple level of that question. Okay. Like which button do I push? Which button is it wise for me to push at this moment? Is this a moment for unconditional, unconditional love? Is this a moment for setting a boundary and any, a uh, parent, for example, or a child for that matter, knows that, well, you don't push just the unconditional love button or the boundary button, but that you are actually fine tuning the knobs that they, you've, got, um, you've got regulatory knobs that help you let the flow of unconditional love and mix it with the flow of an energy that sets limits to it, that sets mm -hmm. boundaries. And each moment in each situation calls for invites us to a particular mixture of that for example you know how do you discipline your kid how do you um how do you how do you set a boundary for your kid even if you're really angry in a way that communicates not that doesn't shame them that communicates love and respect and a boundary at the same time um, or how do you do it with a colleague or a friend or anybody you know for that matter that is a, that's an art you know it's not a science um, and so, and it's a practice. It is completely a practice. So, you know, I want to step back for a second and say that, um, uh, you know, I'm I'm approaching this from a the pr uh, perspective of Jewish mindfulness, which is the, the the core of what we do at the Institute for Jewish Spirituality is present Judaism through the lens of mindfulness. I personally think that that is deeply authentically Jewish, even though you know it overlaps or borrows from other religious traditions, but anyone who's familiar with the Hebrew term hineni in the Torah, which means literally I'm here, but really in what, as it's used in Torah and in the Bible connotes, I am fully present. I am fully open and receptive to what's happening in this moment. I am, my, my vision is not clouded by preconception or judgment. And I think that's also a key thing here is that you're asking me for the practical approach. It begins with that. It begins with trying to cultivate a stance towards life or an awareness that is informed by Hineni. I'm here. I'm open. I'm seeing, I'm trying to look for the truth of what is happening right now. And in order to do this, and this sounds definitely countercultural Jewishly, although I don't believe it is, is that in that moment, we turn off judgment. You know, mm -hmm. that's, that's the part that I think at, at one point in my life would have sounded deeply antithetical to Judaism. What do you mean no judgment? Mm -hmm. um, and it doesn't yeah, mean... Not, like when you say antithetical to Judaism, both culturally and also... Religiously. And religiously yeah. in discernment, distinction, making distinctions. Yes, and, yes, okay. yeah. So, and I'm not denigrating that quality. We definitely need that. But the practice here is in starting not with that, not starting with that judgment, not like jumping into judgment or discernment, but building a pause, uh, even if it's a split second pause to say, am I seeing this right? Um, because if we start with the discernment and judgment, our lens um, is totally informed and bounded by our preconceptions and assumptions. This is, I think, something that's quite topical for today, you know, about mm -hmm. how, do we, how do we live in a way 
with a wide open lens where we see all the possibilities um, as best we can in the moment, just for a split second, before we begin to say, okay, and what should I do now? What does this moment invite me to do? So um, this Hineni, um, Hineni practice, and especially as we see it in, in, uh, in Jewish sacred text, are these moments of these characters who are responding to a situation and opening their ears fully, opening their eyes fully, and they don't have an answer yet. They just have a split second when they say, what am I supposed to, what is happening right now? And what am I supposed to do? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the question, the first question is what's happening. So mm-hmm. I practice Hineni. Um, so just to bring this back to, just cause it's in my, on my mind right now, this question about, you know, how do you discipline your kid? Um, I might say like, oh, I'm so, you know, in a reactive mode, in a non, you know, a less aware mode, I might snap at my kid. I might say something nasty, snarky, you know, denigrating, mean, uh, and immediately regret it. But that's what's going to come out of my mouth when I'm not in, you know, practicing this. But if I can breathe for a second and say, remember, you love this kid. Remember, this kid needs to remember that they're loved. What comes out of my mouth has to have the midah of kavod which is, you know, respect and honor for my child. And mm. so I want to honor them. And at the same time, I want to set a limit. I want to practice gvura, which is setting a boundary um, and doing that in a strong and clear and loving way. The loving part is chesed. I need to communicate. I am not disconnecting from you, even though you, this what I'm about to say is going to make you want to run in your room and slam the door and never, see, you know, talk to me again. I am, you know, I am connect. I am staying connected to you. And this is coming from love from you, not from my own anger or my own shame or my own disappointment or my own fear about your, about me. So all of that is going on in this moment. It sounds like to me, like Bidot gives you a conceptual vocabulary out of which you can compose. You know, there's a, there's a school of thought that says that everything we do is performance. We're constantly mm-hmm. constituting ourselves and, and performing at all moments. And, and, and like, so Nido gives you a conceptual vocabulary to compose a response that's appropriate to the moment and the, and the next moment where you want to be in the next moment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I'll use this, I know for people who have seen that movie inside out, which has yeah. char- characters representing different emotions uh, up in a, it's in the, you know, ironically, it's, it's in the head, you know, in the control center in the head. But I'd love to make a movie with all the Midot up there as well um, as characters vying for attention and, uh, and at the control board where you say, okay, anger, this is your turn. Yeah. Uh, but temper it with, you know, play a little chesed here. It's almost like, you know, it's a music, you could also do it musically. Like what's the, what's the harmony or chorus that you're looking for in this moment, mm-hmm. but it is exactly what you said, Deborah. It's, it's it's a vocabulary which, yeah, which is extreme. In my experience and the experience of the people that I've done this with, extremely helpful. Whether or not people do it, in other words, whether or not people actually are able to say this, like you know what, this is a moment that calls for shmirat halashon. This is a moment that calls for me for mindful speech, and you know what, I don't care. I'm going to blow right through that red light and mm-hmm. and say this. Because um, I can't stop myself, you know. Yeah. I'm running. I'm running the light, you know. I see it's turning yellow. 
but I'm too close to the light. Right. I'm going to take my chances. And we do that. We all do that. We do that over and over. We, we see, no, 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 don't do that. And then you run, you know, you go ahead and do it anyway. Um, so having the vocabulary, then we can step back and kind of say, oh, here it comes. Oh, I can see that light. It's going to turn. So I, I was thinking like this is a pathway toward, this is a practice and pathway toward shuga. Uh, like that there's a, there's a pathway forward. Um, it, 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 it's a guide, but then also, as you said, like the inevitable failings, the, ine- the stumbling over the inevitable obstacles, an understanding of both maybe why or how that happened and right. an opportunity to try it again. It is completely a chuva practice because it recognizes that as human beings, we are imperfect channels, you know, for the flow of these qualities out into the world. Um, and we get in the way. So this is actually a good segue into that question of the obstacles and the chuva part, because what happens, you know, what happens when you say like, Oh, you shouldn't say this. And then you say it, Mm -hmm. or you, you know, or you say like, don't, don't put your kid down. And then you put your kid down, um, you know, because it feels good for some reason in the moment or satisfying to vent your anger or your disappointment or your fear. And then you have to like go in and say, I'm really sorry. I said it that way. Um, I don't mean that I love you and I believe in you and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it is a trooper practice. So as much as it's about trying to catch ourselves and practice in, you know, practice it in our, um, in our daily lives, as much as it is that it's, it's just as much about after the fact learning from and saying, I see what happened there, you know, and I'm going to reset my intention and go back, you know, come back to the drawing board. And that's what Judaism is. You know, it assumes we're going to, it assumes we're going to quote unquote fail. But so the segue for me is about, is that, is to say, okay, um, because it's more than, it's more than a set of terms or vocabulary, although it is that. It's also an awareness. It's also growing in self-awareness so that we notice those obstacles as much as we also, we notice these qualities and we don't within us. We also notice what we might describe as the shadow side of those qualities in us as well, the things that get in the way. And um, you might say that this is kind of the manifestation of the Yetzirahara, the quote, the quote unquote evil inclination, which is usually seen as, uh, you know, like the demonic force within us or the kind of, you know, like, um, I don't know who it would be, the opposite of Jiminy Cricket, you know, the other mm-hmm. voice, Jiminy Cricket's on one shoulder and, you know, his, his demonic partners on the other shoulder uh, vying for our attention. And we're between, you know, this endless war between good and bad. It's very binary. And our approach is actually uh, non-dualistic in that way. That is mm-hmm. that to say that we do practice the midot, but they also have shadow sides. And the shadow side is not like the bad part of ourselves. We don't have a bad part of ourselves, but we have a part of ourselves that because we're human, we are capable of uh, exaggerated fear, exaggerated craving or desire, all of which is kind of, I think, a response to our mortality. So, you know, we want more and more and more. We're, we're greedy or we're, we're afraid and we are, you know, ultimately concerned for our survival. So we want to protect ourselves mm-hmm. and we're hardwired to do that. That doesn't mean we're bad people to be afraid. It means that we're people, we're human we're beings. Human. We're human. We're, right. we're constructed right. to be afraid for the purpose of evolving and surviving. That's a good mm-hmm. thing. However, 
uh, we can over, you know, we can overreact. So here's a personal example. Okay. So when I was leading a group, often this is done in small groups of people who commit to doing this as a practice and supporting each other as a practice. And so they have a chavruta or a partner that they check in once a week and they, sh- they swap stories. They study texts or they swap stories about here's how it's working out for me this week. So I had to lead a group that uh, that month happened to be to process how we were doing on the practice of chesed, of loving kindness or interconnectedness. And I was just failing miserably um, <laughs> in my mind. I live in New York City. Uh, on every street corner, every subway car, there's somebody, a panhandler with their, you know, a homeless person or a panhandler extending their hand and asking for help. And I found myself, and this was in the middle of the winter, I found myself, try to make this story brief, I found myself, instead of being more generous, more expansive, more connected, more uh, open-handed with them, just the opposite. I found myself curling up, constricting, tightening my fist, making, you know, judging them and not being generous at all. And it got, the more I noticed that, and the more I knew you're supposed to be practicing chesed here, the worse it got until a day like actually just a couple of days ago here in New York, when it was bitter, bitter cold, it was, I think, literally two degrees. I got out of the subway and there was a guy on the street and I walked up to him and, um, I, for some, for whatever reason, in that moment, the extremity of the situation caused me to walk up to him, take out my wallet, and I look in my wallet, and all I have are $20 bills. And mm. I think, my first thought is, I can't give him a $20 bill. Um, that's too much money. Uh, my second thought is, well, you can't not give it to him. You're standing right in front of him with your wallet out. Mm. And I begin, I noticed my mind begin to calculate how many Starbucks and coffees I will forego to make up the $19 mm-hmm. that I is more than what I intended to give. And the next thought is to think that is crazy, irrational thinking. Yeah. I, this is not going to matter to me one bit if mm-hmm. I give this man this bill. Mm-hmm. And um, you're just afraid. Yeah. I thought I prayed, I prayed, I, if I do this, I won't have enough. And I mm-hmm. saw, I saw that that was not true in the moment. Mm-hmm. So I gave it to him and I also gave it to him. And I would say, you know, you no, know, there might be situations where I would walk away thinking, what, what a wonderful person I am. Mm-hmm. <laughs> who would yeah. do such a, who would do yeah. such a thing? Like I can hear my mother saying, Oh, my son, what a mensch. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't, but I didn't have, I didn't have that. I didn't have that. I just, it was, it was an, for me, it was an example of experiencing chesed. That is, I was responding to this person in distress and my ego was not in it, either in terms of what I gave and in, or in terms of what I was afraid of. So the point is that I was constricted. I was, you know, because I had a lot of people that particularly at that point in my life who were looking to me for help and you know, having panhandler, you know, every block, having another person with an outstretched hand was intolerable for me. Um, And so here's the upshot of the story is that being able to see clearly what's going on to say, oh, Mark, you're afraid. You're afraid you're not going to have enough. You're not going to have enough money. You're not going to have enough time. You're not going to have enough time to do, to take care of yourself. Um, And, you know, if I could then not judge myself for being, you're so stingy. You're supposed to model chesed. You're a rabbi, you know, like mm-hmm. that would have only made things, that only made matters worse. And that's where the, where I said the judgment is counterproductive 
in this case, the answer is compassionate, you know, recognition of, of the fear that's involved compa and compassion towards myself for that, which melted the fear enough for me to open my hand. And all of the quote unquote shadow sides of these midot, I think, generally stem from fear, exaggerated fear. And so when we can see our fears and discern how much of them are rooted in reality and how much of them are exaggerated and, that, and, and they are rooted in reality. Not that I shouldn't be afraid that I'm not going to have enough. I should be afraid I'm not going to have enough or I, in fact, won't have enough. I, don't mm -hmm. I can't afford to give away everything. Mm -hmm. But I also yeah, much, right. I'm much more afraid than I need to be about that and right. if I can see, oh, you're just a, you know, a scared human being like everyone else, and I can accept myself for that, actually, it, it helps me. It helps then generosity and kindness and connection flow more naturally out of me. So, it's a beautiful story. Thank you so much for sharing it. it it's beautiful. Um, we have to actually wind down, but I, I want to make a reference. We had a wonderful convention uh, in November 2018 where we gathered together 700 Reconstructionists. is really amazing, and I had the honor of uh, moderating a, a panel on food justice, and we had um, uh, Mike Dahl uh, as one of the speakers who runs a, a really extraordinary project in, in Philadelphia uh, called the Broad Street Ministry where they really it, it maps onto the story you just told about um, the, the homeless man living in extremists in New York City and so they aim to provide a whole range of services, including uh, food and shelter with a lot of dignity to homeless people in Philadelphia. And in response to some question, I can't remember precisely what it was, Mike said, compassion is always the answer. I don't care what the question is, compassion is always the answer. And I had never really thought, um, I, this, having this conversation, thinking back to that one, when I meditate on what does it mean to be Hineni, what does it mean to be fully present, and that, that story and that phrase that he just said of compassion mm -hmm. for the other person and toward ourselves, mm -hmm. um, uh, that, like, I, I never thought of that as a, an interpretive translation of Hineni, but that's part of what sparks up for me. What gets opened up mm -hmm. um, with that kind of <clears throat> mindful awareness, open-heartedness um, to yeah. all um, and it just seems to me that that it's that chesed and compassion is is so uh, integrally uh, essential uh, to to showing up in the world the way we want to. Yeah, I would say that, and and actually, I mean, I think that's a quality that distinguishes the way that we present this midot overlay uh, distinguishes us, say, from from contemporary Musar approaches. It's a nuanced difference, but I think that ours really emphasizes exactly what you were just saying. Um, you know, it's interesting because chesed, the word chesed gets translated sometimes as loving kindness and sometimes as compassion. I actually think about it as, um, I mean, it's linked to compassion, um, but that's, that is, it's an emotional state in a way, compassion. It's kind of empathy, you know, being with somebody and their feelings. So I guess I really understand chesed. I've come to understand chesed as awareness of interconnectedness. Yeah. In other words, you know, I, I went up to this, this man on the street because I felt connected to him. That mm -hmm. chesed was activated in me, even though mm -hmm. in a completely automatic way. Um, that's how, quote unquote, God was operating in me, brought me face to face with this person. But also, 
even in the people I walked past with, you know, disdain or judgment, I was in connection with them too. And my judgments, you know, reflected, like they evoked a reaction in me. So Mm -hmm. the the point I'd want to make is that uh, I'd love to be open hearted and generous hearted all the time. Mm -hmm. I I just can't be as a human being. I am going to be close handed. I am going to be hard hearted. The question, the most important question is, can I be compassionate towards myself? Can I be accepting of that uh, and not, um, not compound the closed handedness and the tight heartedness by judging it? And I, actually the story of Pharaoh, which we just, you know, are getting through in the Torah cycle where um, in the first, first five plagues in Egypt, he hardens his own heart and, or his heart is hardened. But in the last five plagues, the Torah describes God as hardening his heart. I really see that. I understand that as a natural part of the practice. That is, we are hardwired also to, become, to be hard-hearted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the purpose of becoming hard-hearted is that it leads us back into open-heartedness. So the question is, when we're in the hard-hearted cycle, um, can we um, not, you know, not have our hearts become kind of sclerotic or, you know, frozen or some, or concrete, but can we go move through the natural cycle of constriction and expansion and promote expansion as we notice. And, you know, I know the the overall theme of this is resilience. That's what I was just thinking about. Right. And, and to me, that is the definition of resilience. It's ability to be with the tightness and the constriction and the, the weight that we carry, can mm. we do that with grace, with compassion and acceptance of this is hard, this is mm. hard. And I'm not, and you know, to your, you know, to the question of, is this an individual thing or a collective thing? I think that's where the collective comes in because for example, we might say, I might say, you know what, especially like take the current political climate and situation. I might say, this is just so hard. I just can't keep this up. The inst- my instinct there to recognize that I'm kind of at my end, I just can't like watch, read more and one more thing, or I can't go to one more march, is that I can say, you know what, I don't have to do this all by myself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that in the, that midah within me, the resilience, the, you know, the conglomeration of midot that we might describe as leading to the capacity for resilience leads me to say, oh, I don't have to do this by myself. Look, my friend is marching next week. Look, my friend is doing this. Um, they're holding it for me for a moment. And, mm-hmm. and that inspires, you know, and I have to sit and rest for a minute here. You mm-hmm. know, I need to recuperate. I need to kind of get my bearings. Um, mm-hmm. And I can let somebody else carry the ball for a little while and then get back in the game. That's all part of resilience. It's, a, it, yeah. you know, one person cannot do it. It's too much. That's it's, right. You know, That's- uh, but we, 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 fall prey to the illusion that we have to do it ourselves and that we are individuals rather than deeply interconnected yeah and that's the so that's the shadow side is to realize that uh uh-oh i'm falling into the illusion that i have to do it myself that's why i feel so exhausted so convert you know kind of paradoxically that wakes me up to say like that's like like what happened with the man on the street that's crazy thinking of course i cannot do this by myself Mm -hmm. i think Mm -hmm. i have to save the world I can't save the world, but we can. And mm. so that awareness, that awareness alone lightens the load. And I say, oh, I can get up. I don't have to do it myself. I'm back yeah. in the game. I'm back in the game. 
So if it isn't like, what's the matter with you? You know, you can't, you know, you can't afford to sit on the sideline right now. Um, That's not going to help. You know, I mean, some people that might help, but it's not a prescription, I think, for long-term resilience. I think that's exactly prescription for short, you know, short-term that might work. Long-term, it's a prescription for total burnout. Well, I mean, this is a great place for us to wrap up, but I think that that's part of what I, why the lens of resilience seems like such a great way to think about Judaism and Jewish life is because the Jewish people have been creating and recreating the Jewish civilization for millennia. So there is some long view here. There's deep wisdom that has enabled both this amazing civilization and more to the point, the people who who are a part of it um, to persevere, uh, mm-hmm. to, to be resilient in the face of uh, in the face of incredible joy and wonderful things, and in the, face, in the face of incredible challenge. So, thank you so much for this really, really rich conversation. I know we could keep going, and we've only scratched the surface, but I'm so I'm so grateful for this conversation and for our friendship, and I look forward to continuing it. and And I want to thank you. Thanks, Deborah. I really really enjoyed this. Uh, for more information, you'll, you can find some of the resources that we talked about on hashivenu.fireside.fm. And you can also find additional resources on reconstructingjudaism.org and on ritualwell.org. I'm Rabbi Deborah Waxman, and you've been listening to Hashivenu, Jewish Teachings on Resilience. Hashivenu.